0: in your Bibles please to 1st Peter chapter 2 1st Peter chapter 2 verse 1 hear now the inerrant infallible and inspired word of God wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Our quotation today is from Nathaniel Vincent from the, uh, the Puritan Morning Exercises series. Mr. Vincent counsels us in this way. You are espoused to him, and should you not consent to be like him who hath betrothed you unto himself in loving kindness, mercy, and faithfulness forever? Nay, you are members of his body, therefore, you should grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. You should discover such a mind as Christ had, you should manifest the same spirit and act as he acted. When he was here in the world. Well, that is a good summary of our, of our sermon today. I'd like to uh, flesh that out with several passages of scripture. But let's remember where we have been. Because Peter tells us that we want to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby, we, we have used a phrase to help us to catch on to that. We've asked ourselves, What are you feeding him? Right? We say that about our sons when they grow tall and broad and take on their manhood. What are you feeding that boy? Well, we may ask ourselves the same question. What are we feeding on? Are we growing tall and broad and strong, being fed by the word of God? Or have we moved beyond a mere taste to take that full draft that is spoken of by the prophet of Isaiah? By the prophet Isaiah. So that's the first thing right we we said growth generally and then we we looked at several aspects of Christian growth that are that are pressed to us in the scripture we talked about growth in grace or sowing to the spirit we looked at growth in knowledge to increase in our knowledge and appreciation of God and his mercy toward us we talked about growth in faith that we that those things uh, unbelievers find hard to believe and rest in We rest in them. We receive them. We embrace them. And that with an unmovable aspect, right? And then uh, we talked about growth in obedience and holiness, that we we would grow in our understanding of the Lord's commands and growing in in understanding in the execution of them, Uh, that we would grow in love toward God and man. That was the next. And then the sixth was growth in fruitfulness, and that was two weeks ago. We had an intervening sermon last week from our licentiates. So growth in fruitfulness out of John 15. The Father is that good vine dresser. Um, it glorifies Him that we bear much fruit. So we can expect God uh, uh, to be forward to cleanse and prune and to do that work that we need to, to bear fruit, to keep that bark right off of the, off of the green shoots. So this will be our last uh, sermon on growth, the last aspect. I actually have two more. I have growth into the image of Christ. But then the next one, growth up into the temple of God, growing up into that temple, that's actually in our text. So as we move on in 1 Peter chapter 2, 4 and following, we'll go ahead and talk about growing up into that temple of God as living stones. This week I'd like to talk about growth... In the image of Christ or growth in Christ likeness. And I want to look at a couple of different passages. The first one is Romans chapter 8, verse 29. It's a familiar passage. For the sake of time, we'll simply read verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Very often we turn to this verse and we turn to it for a discussion of predestination and foreordination. And there's nothing wrong with that. The verse teaches it very clearly uh, that there is uh, in the Godhead from all eternity a foreordination a predestination. The words foreordination or foreordained and the words predestined, those are Bible words. For those who would deny predestination or foreordination, they must deny certain portions of the Bible or empty out of the plain definitions of those terms. We do teach predestination. Calvinistic, if you will, predestination. We do teach predestination. The Apostle Paul teaches it here. So God foreknew, he also predestinated or foreordained. Praorizo is the Greek word there. Foreordained, to establish beforehand. But when we talk about predestination and we talk about foreordination, it is unto something, isn't it? And this is often where it gets fuzzy. Because sometimes you'll remember we talked about saving faith, right? Are you saved is the question that's often asked. But we have to finish that sentence. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath to come. Saved from God's own wrath, right? Well, sometimes we'll talk about foreordination to salvation. That is full, final salvation standing in glory with Christ before the Father in that vision and fruition of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost to all eternity. Well, that is indeed the end, right? But notice what the Apostle says here, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. There's a a particular direction then in foreordination. One commentator said, what God foreordains, he also foredirects. Right? If he predestines, he also predirects. What is the direction of this foreordination, this predestination? It is that we might be conformed to the image of Christ conformed to the image of his son now it may be that um, and some commentators are forward to put to to point out this i believe this is an erroneous conclusion but that foreordination here to the image of christ means in the image of his glory in other words we go along we go along we go along we go along on earth and then one day whoosh we're glorified and we're we're predestined to that kind of conformity with Christ. There are times when the Bible speaks of that. right? Does it always speak of that? I don't think so. But it does speak of that from time to time. In, um, in Philippians chapter 3, at the end of that passage... <coughs> For our conversation, I'm in verse 20, for our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able able even to subdue all things unto himself. Well, that's pretty clear that Paul has in mind there, has in view the resurrection. He's already spoken of the resurrection earlier in that chapter. So he brings that into a full focus there. And being conformed to Christ in that way, at the end of that chapter, is certainly speaking of the resurrection. That's true. But beloved, I, would, I think it would be a mistake to think that this conforming toward Christ is only in the next life is only at the resurrection, is only that great miraculous wind-up of the ages when all of the dead are raised and we stand before Christ and we're openly acknowledged and acquitted before angels and men and then we will be with the Lord forever. It's not just that kind of conformation, not confirmation, conformation, being conformed. The apostle uses a particular Greek word here that he will use elsewhere which shows us, which proves conclusively, we'll, that we'll look at it in a few moments, that we are indeed to be conformed to the image of Christ more than simply in the image of his glory. There is a conforming that belongs to us as the people of God that we are to grow into in this life. This is part of our Christian growth. That we want to be more and more like Christ. <clears throat> As I was meditating on this, as I was thinking on this this week, I thought of, um, we hear about, you know, how the Bible has worked its way into the English language. Over the course of the King James Version being used in these last, however long it's been, you know, 400 years or so, um, these phrases, you know, the skin of my teeth, right, Job said that other phrases like that. We'll we'll, we'll hear people say things like, oh, that man, he's got the patience of Job. Have you ever heard that? The patience of Job. No. Okay. But really, don't we want the patience of Christ? Let's think about Christ for a moment and his patience. Let's think about uh, day upon day upon day, he who held the world in his hands he who uh, sustains all of creation, he who is God and man, knowing everything that he knew, when, we'll just cite one instance here, on the way to the time when they are to sit down in the upper room where Christ tells them of his impending death and institutes the Lord's Supper, the disciples are still arguing who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. That's patience. Patience he brings them into the upper room and he says to them, truly with desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And just a few moments ago, they were doing what? Arguing who's going to be the greatest. Well, that's patience. This is the kind of thing that we talk about when we talk about being conformed to the image of Christ in in that daily way. There's something that we know about ourselves and that is that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That there is some sort of transformation necessary. And that is that eschatological transformation that we spoke about. That Paul will speak about in 1 Corinthians 15.50. There is a real resurrection coming. And in that resurrection, um, what does Paul say? He, he says that, that corruption will be put off. And incorruption will be put on. That life, sorry, death will be swallowed down by life. Life will triumph over death in such a way that death is swallowed down and gone. Right? And in the midst of that, he will say that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But again, I think we err, and we err greatly when we say that our changing our becoming conformed to Christ is something we needn't worry about until the end of days truly I think that's an error and I have several passages uh, to talk to you about to uh, to bear out that aspect let's turn to 1st John chapter 3 first even as he is pure. That last he there is the Greek word ekenos, which means that one, or it means Christ. The context demands that it is Christ that we're we're speaking about. So there are a couple of ways in these three verses that we've read that show us that this this being conformed to the image of Christ, it takes place now in this life, as well as eschatological. <clears throat> the first thing that we recognize is that any change that takes place in this life is because we're anticipating that eschatological change. When he appears, we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. That's what John says. Now there are two things in this passage that tell us that there's already been a change that takes place in us, uh, changing us more into conformity with Christ. The first is what that the world knows us not the world knows us not and remember john was a good student of his master right jesus told his disciples if the world loved you that mean that would mean that you were its own right the world loves its own John will say here that the world knows us not. That means that there has already been, because of our association to Christ, some sort of change, some sort of transformation, such that the world looks at us us and says, I don't know who that is. I don't know you anymore. We used to go out and we did this and we did that. And you used to speak like this and we would do these things together. And you don't do that anymore. Peter will put it this way. That they think it's strange that you don't run with them to the same excess of riot that you did before. Chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. So the first measure of change is a negative one. The world knoweth us not. We're not like them. But the second measure of change is because eschatologically we will be like Christ. We will be, quote, completely conformed to his image. Here now we are engaged in what John will call purifying ourselves even as he, Jesus, is pure. He is the goal. He is the example. He is the exemplar. It is his image toward which we strive with what? With an effort of purification. That is purification from sin. Purification from disobedience. Purification from transgression. Purification from leaving things undone that should be done and not doing things that should never be done. Learning to do everything more and more conformed to that purity that is Christ. So, John speaks here in 1 John chapter 3 of an advancement, of an advancement in purity. We might also note that this is a part of Christ's intercession for us. Turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 and verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be uh, made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So here this union that we have with Christ is a, is a, a, a tenet, a request. A, an item of his intercession. And in this intercession, then, he prays that more and more we would take on that union and communion with himself, that we would be driven further and further into him, which is also to commune with the Spirit and with the Father. And so I can, I think we can say without, uh, without fear of contradiction that this advancement toward Christ, this being conformed, to Christ's image, being more and more uh, in communion with him, is something for which Christ intercedes constantly for us. Certainly he did when he was on earth. And why would we think that his intercession afterward would be anything less? It would be rather more. So the other thing that Jesus told us is that we are to imitate him. We are to take on that likeness, and we'll see this in John chapter 13, among many other places, but John 13 will suffice, verse 12. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done unto you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought to. Also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done unto you. Verily I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Well, Jesus then out of his own mouth tells us that he has given us an example to follow. So what have we seen thus far in our sermon? We've seen that Paul will tell the Roman church that it is through foreordination and predestination that they are to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that being conformed to the image of Christ means more than simply an eschatological conforming. It means that even in these days, as we ready ourselves for that great day of being conformed, That we begin to take on that likeness even now. We grow into that. We've seen several aspects of that growth. We've seen it negatively. Right? The world doesn't know us anymore. There's no intimacy with the world. The world looks at us and says, They're not us. You're not us. You used to be, but you're not now. We we saw in John and Peter. Then secondly, we heard that as we have our eyes on Christ and will one day be completely conformed to him, even in these days we are purifying ourselves as Christ is pure. And then we have the example of Christ himself who said, I'm doing this as an example for you so that you will follow me. Okay, now let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and let's advance that thought a little bit more. <clears throat> We'll begin our reading in verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We talk about a growth here, don't we? What kind of a growth is it? Well, Paul doesn't leave us to guess. It is a growth into him who is the head, even Christ. That Can I say it this way? That the church herself may grow together into her head. Into her head Christ. That is, into thinking more like him. Into speaking more like him. Into behaving more like him. Into setting that Christ-likeness before the watching world. That as the disciples of the first century stood before the Sanhedrin, they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. So the world might take note of us as well, that we too have been with him. How does Paul set out that growth here in Ephesians 4? We didn't take the time to read the whole chapter. But the entire chapter is all about the unity of the body. It begins very early on, right? Uh, We want to endeavor, verse 3, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. The word for bonds there is, it's related to that word philake in Greek, which is a, a, a word that means prison, that we're bound up to this unity, one with another. That's the kind of strength of the unity that we ought to have. He'll go on to say those famous words, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all, above all, and new all. Then he will talk about some diversity in that unity, won't he? And the diversity is the diversity of giftedness within the body. And so then he'll turn to Christ in this chapter and Christ as a victor. He ascended up on high. He led captivity captives yeah, captivity, captive, and he gave gifts unto men. And then he'll he'll have a, a short two verse parenthesis there. What does it mean that he ascended up on high? Well, that he descended into lower parts of the earth. That is, he became the lowest of human beings. He was a zygote at one time. He was his condescension went that far, right? So. Then as he ascended up, however, he gave some things. He gave gifts to men. And what did he give? He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. What does it mean that he gave those five? What what is being communicated there by the apostle? That he gave the teachers of the church. That's what it means. In the context of the New Testament, Now, did Christ give the teachers of the Old Testament? He did. They spoke by the Spirit of Christ. We've read about that before in 1 Peter chapter 1. But here, Paul is putting this in the context of the New Testament. He gave, Christ gave, because he's talking about his ascent into heaven as that that marker of his victory. And what did he do when he ascended into heaven? He led captivity captive. That is, his captives are with him. They are, as it were, in in chapter 2 of this same book, they are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Christ prayed, I pray that my my men, my, my disciples, and those who will believe on them according to their word, that they will be with me wherever I am. And there is a part of our existence, beloved, that is a heavenly existence with Christ, being united to him and seated with him. Christ prayed for that. And here we are ascended with him. We are ascended as those who were formerly captive to sin, Satan, and death. Now captive to Christ and his life. Joined to him in one body. With one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father and one body. One spirit and so on. So when Christ ascended to, to assure the unity of the church. He gave some gifts. This is what victorious kings do. They give gifts to their subjects. Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He gave the teachers of the church in the context of the New Testament to teach the people of God. Why? Because we need that. What does Paul say in this passage? Why do we need it? Well, some of you will recognize that he's quoting from Psalm 68, 18 here. Psalm 68, Let's go back and turn to that because there's an added piece of information that Paul does not bring into the New Testament, but it is an important piece of information as we endeavor to understand the passage. In Psalm 68, verse 18 Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive thou hast received gifts for men yea for the rebellious also that the lord god might dwell among them why do we need these gifts this these gifts of apostles prophets evangelists pastors and teachers why do we need the teaching office of the church beloved we need it because we start out our career as rebels It is by the preaching of the word of God that we turn from darkness to light. It is by the word and spirit of God that we are brought into fellowship and communion with Christ. That we might be conformed unto his image. Rebels, they're not about that. So it's because we're rebels. Because we're sinfully divided. Secondly, Because we are sinfully divided. This is a hard thing for us to remember. But Jeremiah tells us that it is the anger of the Lord that divides us. We are divided as a people, as churches, denominationalism, and even within denominations or within like minded churches or even among churches that confess the same confessions. We're divided. And why are we divided? Well, because our teachers aren't doing their jobs. This is where I point the guns here, at myself. Remember that the prophet Isaiah promises in Isaiah 52, I believe it's verse 8, that there's coming a day when the watchman will sit on the wall and lift up the voice together and will see eye to eye. Sadly, beloved, this is not that day. And so we are all called upon, are we not, to bewail our disunity, to ask that the Lord would be pleased to raise up those ministers that they might speak the same things, that they might have the same confession, that we would not multiply extra confessional uh, terms of communion and find ways to divide, rather that we would find ways to join together. We are sinfully divided the thesis, the theory, the theology is right here in Ephesians 4. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one God and Father over all, above all, through all, and in you all. That's the, that's the, the theory. That's the theology of it. But we are sinfully divided. And so it's incumbent upon the ministers of the word to teach the truth of God and to And to stop uh, feathering our own nests by, by trying to distinguish ourselves from everyone else. But rather to bring us together as much as we are able without compromise in doctrine. Without compromise in scripture. We need a ministry also because we are ignorant. And we must come to that greater knowledge of Christ. So what does Paul say here? Uh, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We need more knowledge, beloved. I know. Oh, no, no, no Pastor, you don't understand. Paul said that knowledge puffs up and love edifies. That's right. We need more love and we need more knowledge. We need both. And the ministers of the word are responsible to teach us both. We must have more love and we must have more knowledge. The more love and the more knowledge we have, the more we will return to that ideal of union that Paul has set out here in Ephesians 4. Why else do we need a ministry? Notice what it says. We need a ministry because we are children. Hmm, Nobody likes to be called children. But verse 14 That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro. Children. That we might have that strong and manly faith. That belongs to those who are of full age. As the apostle elsewhere says. Those who are of full age. Not descending into childlike squabbles. But ascending up into that full aged Religion that is mature, that is, that like wine and cheese have developed that greater savor for its age and maturity. Why else do we need a ministry? Because there are winds of false doctrine that seek to turn us aside from the simplicity that is in Christ. We need that ministry for that as well. 2nd Corinthians chapter 11 for a moment. Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So, your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ; for if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, you might bear you might well bear with him. There are winds of doctrine, are there not? Down a little bit later in that chapter, the apostle Paul will say are they ministers of Christ verse 23 I speak as a fool I am more in labors more abundant in stripes above measure in prisons more often deaths oft and then he'll he'll speak of of his labors as an apostle but he will also speak of those ministers of Satan which transform themselves into angels of light so we're easy pickings without this competent ministry of the gospel there are those who seek us to to turn us to turn us aside from Christ they use cunning craftiness they lie in wait and they use deceit in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 12 through 15 these are ministers of Satan that are dressed up in angels of light so instead of these pitfalls then what does paul say notice Verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. And so being conformed to Christ, beloved, is set forth in this passage, not only as a hedge against disunity and schism, but a hedge against apostasy. We must either be growing up into Christ or declining from him. Either we are advancing in knowledge Growing in grace, growing in our Christ-likeness and being conformed to his image, or we are sliding away from him, perhaps even imperceptibly, to ourselves. As I've told you before, I I, I say it again, the scripture doesn't speak much on stasis, does it? It speaks on either moving ahead or slipping behind. So, what do these ministers do then? They preach the Word of God to us. They teach us the ins and outs of the Christian faith. They teach us about Jesus and His Word and ways. And they teach us, as Paul will write elsewhere, that all that counsel of God, everything that Christ has commanded us, as Christ Himself said in Matthew 28, such that we should be no more children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and turned aside by the slight of men in cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive but that we should learn how to speak the truth one to another that we might grow up into him who is the head even Christ not just waiting for our eschatological change from heaven but seeing those changes as they point to that great change even now no longer known by the world, purifying ourselves as He is pure, listening, beholding the voices of our teachers, comparing Scripture to what we hear, proving all things and holding fast to that which is good, that the Lord would be pleased to draw us not only together, but up and into Himself more and more, that our thoughts And our words and our deeds might be more and more conformed to him. I have one more passage to talk to you uh, uh, with regard to this uh, or to mention with regard to this this topic. And that's in Philippians chapter 3. We're already there earlier in the end of the chapter. But there's something earlier in that 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 belongs in this discussion. So the chapter begins by Paul speaking about some of the false teachers that are alive in his day. He will call them evil workers and he'll even recharacterize the word for circumcision. He he will change it. He'll put a different prefix on it and make those men who desire to circumcise that is to make people beholden to the entire Mosaic cultus. He will say to them that that these men are they're, they're not circumcisers at all. They're, they're those who cut people off. They're the amputators from Christ, if you will. That's what he means to say. In the, um, in the days, in our reforming fathers, especially in the days of the Puritans, we heard about the judicial laws of Moses and they said, well, that, that they can be exercised without Uh, too much fear but there's a discussion there of general equity that we need but with regard to the ceremonial laws of moses they called those absolutely deadly this is what paul is getting at here that those who would press the the ceremonial laws to first century gentile believers they're behaving themselves in a way they're amputating people from christ paul will say in galatians if you are circumcised Christ shall profit you nothing. These men are the cutters. They're the concisers. They're the amputators. And then he will say that we are the true circumcision, which worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. And then he will go on to talk about his pedigree as a Pharisee. And he'll say, you know, if anybody might have confidence in the flesh, it'd be me. And then he'll list out a number of things. And and we'll recognize those as badges of Judaism. Right? To put it in modern parlance, as a Pharisee, Paul was a star. People looked to him. But he said, all of those things, I counted them loss, that I might win Christ. In fact, all kinds of things like that. I have counted them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. Okay. He'll say the righteousness which is of God by faith. And that's a direct quotation from the passage. But now notice what he does. He's going to talk about growing into Christ. Listen to what he says. Um, Be found in him. And then in verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. You know that word conformable? That's the same word Paul used back in Romans 8:29 that we should be conformed to the image of his son. But notice the image of his son gloriously is not being made conformable to his death at all. What does Paul mean being made conformable to the death of Christ? Well what does he tell us in Romans chapter 6? He doesn't leave us to guess about that. We are conformed to the death of Christ in that the death he died, he died into sin once and the life he lives, he lives unto God. Therefore, consider yourselves also to be dead unto sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ that we may walk in newness of life. And so what Paul says here is I am united to Christ by faith. And what I want to do is I'm not content with what I currently have of Christ, but I'm going on that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, that is the power over sin, the fellowship of his sufferings, that is death unto sin, if by any means I might attain to that eschatological union with Christ. Resurrection from the dead. So Paul relates his current being alive from the dead to his coming resurrection from the dead. And says that these two are related one to another. And that in being conformed to the image of Christ's resurrection. And also of his death. We are fitted for that future resurrection to come. And so what will he say? Verse 12. Not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect. But I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is looking for a pressing advancement in this world. That he may partake of Christ in the next. He is looking for. Uh, growth. In Christ's likeness today. And Christ's likeness here. Is put for. Being conformed to his death. And being conformed to his resurrection. If by any means we might attain. To. That resurrection to come. Notice how Paul uses. The resurrection in a couple of different ways there. So. What have we seen? We have seen that there is one final aspect that we wanted to talk about of growth. And that is that we may grow in our likeness to Christ. We talked about his patience. That the kind of patience that Christ exhibited should be our patience. That the kind of service that Christ exhibited, we don't have to conjecture on that. Christ said we should serve one another like that in John 13. That the speech... That he had. His his words were full of the Father's will. That our words would be full of God's will. That the the thoughts that Christ articulated. it, It would be impossible to know Christ's thoughts. Except he articulate them. And so we learn. For instance in the garden. Of Christ's humility and submission to the will of his Father. That we might have that same kind of inward submission. To God and his will. All of this because. We are united to Christ and are to grow up in him. We learned that we're that the world doesn't know us. That we are known of the Lord. That we are in the involved in this process of purification because Christ is pure and we're taking on his likeness. We learned to listen to our teachers and we saw all of the needs that we have for this kind of growth. Because we're children, because we're rebels, because we're easily swayed, because there's all kinds of false doctrine floating around out there. Because we need to learn to speak one to another in a way that will cause us all to grow up into him who is the head, even Christ. So let's make a few uses then and we'll be done. Use number one. Beloved let us fix our gaze upon the eschatological hope that is ours in Christ of attaining communion and glory with the Lord. Don't let these days that pile up one after another uh, uh, cause you to slumber into thinking that they will continue as as all other things do. Don't be like those people in 2 Peter chapter 3 who say, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have. Don't let these days that pile up one day upon another uh, cause you to go to sleep and forget that we have an end with Christ in glory. If we would remember that, we would be more inclined, I believe, to be drawn up into Christ in these days. So daily then, all the time, regularly, make it your your bent to remember that one day we will stand with Christ before the Father. That we will take on that likeness to Christ in a way that is unimaginable to us today. And be thankful, and be hopeful, and be confident in it. Notice Romans chapter 2 with me for a moment, verse 6. Who will render, this is talking about God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. What does it say there in verse 7? We look ahead to the glory that is here. And how do we do it? By patient continuance in well doing and that is how we testify that we seek for glory, honor, immortality and eternal life so remember that beloved that's the first use you have an eschatological hope let that inform your daily walk in other words the second use let us move in the direction of that eschatological hope in this life. So we need to ask ourselves, what is our direction? Are we moving in the direction of our professed end? Or are we doing things that are at odds with it? Having too much of the world with us? Well, it's a good question, isn't it? We are told in several places of scripture, I have a couple of them down here, 1 Peter 1.24, 1 John 2.17, 1 Corinthians 7.31. All three of those verses tell us something about the world. What is it that is passing away? It's not durable. It's not going to remain. The things that belong to this world, they're not going to remain. If our eyes are distracted from our eschatological hope to look over at the things of the world, and if we look over at those things of the world in our gaze is too long distracted, we will find then that when the world perishes, we do too. Beloved, keep your focus and move toward your eternal inheritance because there's nothing here. Hebrews chapter 13, we have here no continuing city, but we seek one to come. So we must remember that. And then third, as we wrap up our talk on Christian growth, we go back to our original question. What are you feeding on? What satisfies your hunger? Is it the Word of God? Is it the first thought of your day and the last thought before you rest at night? Are your thoughts with God and His Word? Is that what you're feeding on? We'll remember, won't we, from Matthew chapter 13 and verse 22, that there is such a thing as a seed being cast into, into ground. And it, it germinates. It comes up. But with it comes up all the cares of this world. And finally and eventually, that original seed is choked out by the cares of this world Mark will say, the lusts of other things, and so on. Beloved, what are we feeding on? What is your steady diet? We live in a day where we are inundated with media, all kinds of media. You know, uh, moving media, stationary media, all kinds of things we can look at. Some of those, you know, uh, here's a challenge for you. Uh, next time you go into a, a restaurant or maybe you're, you, you can see across the street where your neighbor has his television on and you can, you can watch the screen, you know what you'll see? You'll see that screen change about every six or seven seconds. Boom. Count to six. Boom. Count to six. Boom. Count to six. Boom. Once again. We're inundated with that kind of media that draws us in and keeps us attached. You've heard, you've heard me tell you, watch out for the news because the news doesn't, doesn't give you news. The news is designed to draw you in and glue you to the television so that you won't think you can go anywhere without the information that you're about to get. That's what they want you to think. What are you feeding on, beloved? Turn all that stuff off. And sit down with God and His Word. Pray for illumination. Hear your teachers. And when I say your teachers, I don't mean just me. I know some of you read wonderful works. Read them and profit from them. Hear your teachers. Be inoculated against every wind of doctrine that comes about that will draw us away from the simplicity that is in christ so three uses for you remember and be warmed in your eschatological hope and let that inform how you live second move in the direction of that hope and know that moving toward the world means destruction and then third what are you feeding on keep feeding on god and his word Bring questions to your wise Christian friends from the Bible and get answers and move ahead. And then finally, beloved, learn to speak to one another. This is the command of the Apostle Paul. Learn to speak to one another with these words of truth that you hear from your teachers and from the word of God that together we we might be drawn up into Christ and connected to him as head to body. There is no other way to live the Christian life than that. All other ways are not the way that is Christ. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the the ways and the means of Christian growth, as we have seen over these last few weeks together. And we pray, Lord, that it would be our desire to grow. In grace, in faith, in knowledge, in love, in fruitfulness. That we might grow up into him who is the head, even Christ. O oh, Lord, that we might grow. Deepen, we pray, our faith and broaden our faith. Inform our faith. O Lord, help us to feed upon thy word and to put away the vain philosophies and reasonings of this world. Lord, as we have often taken encouragement from that passage in 2 Corinthians 10 where the Apostle Paul declares that the apostolic ministry is to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We pray that more and more our thoughts would be in obedience to him, to grow in grace and in knowledge and in holiness and so on. So Lord, we pray, fix our gaze, as we have asked, upon that eschatological hope, that that should drive us even in these days, that we would remember our destination, and in remembering our destination, that we would be on the path toward it, that there would be a connection between those days and these and deliver us, Lord, also from becoming sleepy, from, be, from thinking that seeing that nothing has changed from day to day to day, that it will not change. Deliver us from that kind of faithlessness, we pray, and grant us that we might be refreshed in our eternal hope and confidence daily, and that being thus refreshed, we would advance toward it. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.